The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is about privacy and mediation and conflict resolution. And I have to tell you, I am so thrilled that we have a guest on that we've had before, and he's just total privacy guru. He's brilliant. He's an author. He's wonderful. Let me tell you a little bit about him, but he's been on our show before. Andrew Serwin is an attorney and partner in the founding chair of the Privacy, Security, and Information Management Practice in the San Diego law firm of Foley and Lander LLP. He's actually um, part of the, uh, it's in Del Mar, uh, San Diego, Del Mar, and Washington, D.C. offices. And he's handled a number of very high-profile privacy and consumer protection matters, including multiple privacy enforcement matters before the Federal Trade Commission. And he's internationally recognized as one of the top leaders in consumer protection and privacy. He's a great lawyer, a great person. Let me tell you a little bit more. There's, I mean, I could go on and on about him, but I, I want to share some of this great stuff. He also has extensive litigation and enforcement practice, having served as lead counsel in a number of FTC matters before the Office of Civil Rights, as well as state consumer protection and consumer privacy litigation matters. And he has tremendous recognition. He was named to Security Magazine's 25 Most Influential Industry Thought Leaders for 2009, and he's the only law firm lawyer to ever receive this award. And he was ranked second in the 2010 computer survey of top global privacy advisors. He's recognized by Chambers USA as one of the top privacy and data security attorneys nationwide, where he's been described as a clients, by clients as a tireless worker holding on to the ever-shifting puzzle pieces of the law in the area in, in a way that privacy lawyers cannot do, any other privacy lawyer can't do. He also is the author. I mean, this guy has so much. I mean, you'd think he's 80 years old, but he's a young whippersnapper. Andy has written a number of books, including The Leading Treatise on Privacy, Information Security and Privacy, A Guide to International Law and Compliance. And he has also written Information Security and Privacy, A Guide to Federal and State Law and Compliance. In many other books, many other articles, He's just really prolific in that, and he's wonderful. And you can find out more about him at our website at KUCI.org 
slash privacy piracy where you can see his picture of his handsome face you can see his bio and we link to foley.com where you can find out even more about him so i'm just thrilled because he has just recently joined the uh, law practice management and technology executive committee of the state bar of california which i i'm so thrilled to be on and i'm just excited that he would take time out of his incredible schedule to also help that and we're going to be doing a program at the state bar of california um on in october and so we thought what we would do is just kind of play this out and give you a little taste of the kinds of things that we're going to be sharing with the lawyers, but share it with you so that you as a layperson will get an idea of what the issues are with privacy and mediation. So, hi, Andy. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm great, and I'm so, so thrilled that you're with us. You're just terrific, and we're always so glad to see you and participate with you and especially have you on the show. So let's start. Okay, Andy, as a litigator, you're a privacy expert. How do you feel about using mediation to help your clients resolve disputes? Well, Mar, you know, the reality is most of the litigation you deal with, uh, the vast, vast majority settles. Very few cases get tried. And so a lot of what you do if you're defending these cases is to try to get the, the case set upright so that you can get the most favorable settlement uh, you can for your client. And Part of that is obviously how the merits are handled. Part of that is the facts, which you, as lawyers, you know, don't control. But part of it is knowing when to use alternative dispute resolution processes, such as mediation, to help the parties really get to, get to a place where there's an agreement. And we can talk, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about the FTC later, but, you know, the point of, of settlement is both parties have to agree. If you can't get agreement by both parties, there's no settlement, which means, in essence, a third party has to decide the case for you. And if you want to settle, uh, again, you've got to do it in the way that's the most favorable you can deal you can get. But the reality is, there's a lot of times where mediation will help um, you know help the parties get there. And in part because there's a third party sitting there telling both parties how they um, you know how how their case should be viewed and how the case could be viewed by a jury. Yeah. Okay, so now you get to ask me. I do, I do. Uh, so, uh, you know, one of one of the things I think for for people who haven't, uh, you know, had the pleasure of the litigation process, which hopefully is most of our our audience today, uh, you know, Mari, maybe you could explain what uh, what mediation is and sort of how when it's used, how it's used, and and other factors that may help make the process uh, more successful. Yeah, that's a great question, because I think a lot of people mix up arbitration with mediation. So first, let me clarify that an arbitrator acts as if he were a judge. He hears both sides, and he makes he or she makes the decision for the parties. And it's in a private setting, but it is still some a third party is delegated with the power to make a decision. So you don't, it's kind of risky. Mediation, however, is a, a third party comes in to facilitate negotiations. And we do so in such a way that, number one, we try and help the parties to see their strengths and weaknesses of the case, help them to see options for settlement, help them to look at finding a mutual gain for themselves so that they can get the thing over with without you know, attacking each other anymore. Because when you're in litigation or you're in arbitration, you're looking at 
at blame quite a bit. You're looking at the past. What did you do wrong? Why we should win? In mediation, you're looking at how can we problem solve this? So it's different because the neutral doesn't have the power and doesn't want the power to make a decision. The neutral wants to help the parties to get a deal. And it can happen prior to litigation. I sometimes have people come to me when they are in a business dispute and they don't want it out there in public, so they'll want to settle it privately before they litigate. Or after a, a, a lawsuit is filed, they may be referred by the court. There are court panels for mediation, and then it might even be voluntary that they go to alternative dispute resolution. Or even after they have received a verdict, maybe they'll go to mediation then, or at the appellate court, they can go to mediation. So. At any time, the parties can say, hey, let's get a third party to help us get this over with. So there's, it's never too early. It's never too late. How does that sound, Andy? <laughs> Sounds right to me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so how do you talk to your clients about the use of mediation? Well, you know, I think it, it depends on the, the point you're at in, uh, in the case because I think, you know, if you're going, in essence, post-filing but pre-sort of class certification or, you know, major milestones in the case being, being met, we'll say, uh, you know, I think there's a different dynamic. And I think what, uh, you know, there, there's different points in cases, I think. Some cases can be settled easily, and, and frankly, those are the ones you probably don't need the, uh, the third party for. Uh, the ones that, where the parties are both looking at it reasonably objectively, uh, a lot of times if it's a business dispute or, you know, a dispute with privacy, you can usually get reasonable people to, to look at the facts and say, okay, well, here's our risks. Um, doesn't always mean the case is settled, and there's a kind of a timing. I've always felt there's a timing issue. There's certain key moments in cases with, that decisions can drive settlement, and one of those points is uh, after a demur has been granted, which is a, a motion brought at the trial court, uh, in state law at least, or state courts, to dismiss the case, if you will. And so there's times where merely the threat of that is enough to drive a plaintiff to the settlement table. Uh, there's times where the court's order will say, I don't think you can prove this, but you have leave to amend and have to try and plead this again. And those kind of points give rise to natural parts and pieces of, of having a discussion with your client about, is this the right time to use a third party? And I think when I find third parties to be the easiest, to, to the most useful, I'll say, is when there's really a, um, at least one side, if not both sides of the case, aren't looking at it uh, realistically. Because if both sides look at it realistically, uh, you may not always agree on the outcome, you may not agree on the damage number, but you can usually at least get to a place where you understand the other side's position, and then the client, both clients have to take the, the chance of, of having a third party decide it. So I find that in, in bigger cases where there's a lot of exposure, and there's a particularly where there's a disconnect between the parties that it's very useful to have a third party come in and, and give everybody their candid assessment of the case. Right. And you know, sometimes people will go into mediation because the the attorney is reasonable, but maybe the other attorney on the other side is not reasonable and needs to get somebody to help them to get reason. Or I just had a case recently with it that was referred by the Superior Court and both attorneys were really pretty reasonable reasonable, but the clients were not. So they wanted a third party to, to help them to get over the hump. 
So, you know, there's, it, it's really the dynamics of psychology a lot, too, isn't it? It is. It is. And being a guy who did a lot of behavioral psych in my background, I guess I, I guess that helps sometimes. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, I think it is. I think there's, again, there's certain points in cases where they're easier to settle. And, you know, there's, there's a value in having, uh, you know, courts are usually pretty good at controlling deadlines and dates, which helps motivate people sometimes. And, and certain motions, whether it's class certification motions, demurs, summary judgment motions, even the fact that those are on file, um, one way or another will will help hopefully help parties see that there's risk, um, you know, risk in every case. And I think that's one of the common misconceptions. I don't know if you see it a lot or not, but I think there's a lot of people who feel um, whether it's a plaintiff or a defendant, they've got a slam dunk winner. And I've, I've been doing it long enough to know that even slam dunk winners or slam dunk losers, there's a decent percent of cases that uh, go the opposite way, and, and you hope you win more of the ones you shouldn't win and lose less of the ones you should win as a, as, as a lawyer. But the reality is, anytime you put it in a third party's hand, there's risk that it's going to go away you don't anticipate. And I think that's, I don't know how much you see that in, in what you, you're doing as a mediator, but that's certainly one of the key things I think that, that I tell my clients about this is, you know, if you have a third party decide it, um, as good a job as we may do, there's some percent chance that it's just not going to go the way we all think it will. Right, because you can't always control the situation and what someone might say and what the judge might be thinking in his head. So that's why, again, we need to clarify the difference between a uh, someone who makes the decision like an arbitrator or, an, or a judge versus a mediator who is a facilitator. Right, and, and even a jury. I mean, when you put yes, it in the hands jury. of 12 people, uh, you never know what you know nine of them are going to do. And I think that's... It's a great part of our system that we have that, but uh, look, there's times where even uh, you know juries make a decision and judges take it out of their hands, and you just never know what's going to happen. And so that's the the unpredictable nature uh, really makes the alternative dispute resolution process uh, for mediation very attractive, particularly when there's a lot of exposure in cases. And uh, privacy is one of those types of cases that have a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of issues. And uh, one other thing, you know, obviously you deal with, you deal with privacy cases. There's also the flip side of dealing with privacy uh, in, in litigation, such as class actions, where you've got, you know, sometimes hundreds of thousands of people, if not more, having their personal information potentially uh, at issue because uh, you have to identify the classes at sometimes, or sometimes they're not identified. But maybe you could tell our audience about uh, the privacy uh, issues in mediation and how um, you know how those work and what the advantages are pre-litigation. Yeah, you know th- the funny part about privacy disputes and privacy l- litigation is that as soon as you get into the court, you lose all your privacy. So, I mean, even some of these, you know, I remember so many times being a- an expert witness on privacy cases where the plaintiff brings a privacy case and then they're sitting in deposition and a- all their privacy is is revealed. You know, they have no privacy anymore. So it's it's ironic that we sue for privacy invasion or, we, or privacy disputes because then what happens is a lot of the stuff gets out there that you didn't even expect would get out there. So that's another wonderful reason to, to use mediation, because in mediation, that is the only forum that really protects your privacy, because you can control what information gets revealed, except when we talk about a class action. So we're going to talk about that in a minute. But if it's not a class action, if it's a business-to-business dispute, for example, I think uh, one of the important things, I I had two Chinese companies that were doing business together, 
and it, because there was a lawsuit involved, it was really starting to hurt both of their businesses. So they quickly went into mediation. Uh, we settled all the disputes. They were able to rewrite their vendor uh, agreement, and then they were able to rehabilitate so that they got their business going again. So, you know, a lot of times when you're having a privacy dispute or you're having private information out there, it can be very embarrassing. It can hurt your reputation. And so having a, in a forum where you can resolve disputes without litigation, whether it's two good attorneys, like I know you, for example, Andy, I know you're reasonable. I know you're smart. And I know there are times that you won't need a third party. But if you have someone on the other side who is really difficult to work with, it might be easier to have a third party neutral who can build a relationship with both sides and help them to get it over with. So the privacy issues are really only protected in in mediation. And we'll talk a little bit more about confidentiality, but truly uh, privacy is, I know for whether it's a business to business or a private party to another private party, you've definitely got that protection that you don't have. But let's let's talk about how how it's different with class action mediation. Sure, and I think one of the challenges there really is um, it's less so for, and I'm pre- at least on the class action side, obviously I do the defense side on, on you know, the business-to-business disputes. I could be on either side of the V, if you will. But, um, you know, for the defense lawyer, the challenge really is dealing with the issues that the, you know, the plaintiff's lawyer has, which is um, there's times where these class actions settle for, you know, most privacy cases, they're either a statutory penalty case, meaning the allegation is something that gives rise to a, you know, by, per violation dollar figure, and you're, you're doing math, and there's always a debate about how many violations and what the penalty really should be and how many members of the class there are. Um, it gets even harder when you're dealing with, uh, you know, let's say a security breach type case, where in most cases the courts will hold that there's no damage. And so it creates some really difficult dynamics at times because the plaintiff's lawyers uh, want to get a good settlement in their view for the class and get value. And at the same time, the, you know, the defense lawyers are saying, we don't think you can prove damage. We're not going to pay a huge number. We're certainly not going to pay damages because there are none. And so you get into these challenges of what's the appropriate value, um, and part of that is just assessing if there's even any harm, let alone, you know, that can be assessed, which in most cases there's not. And then you get into, uh, frankly, another difficult issue, which is once that's established, um, what is the real value of that settlement? Is it fair for the class? And then you get into the attorney's fees issues, which um, I've had cases where uh, we've been, thankfully, uh, gotten good results in them, but, you know, we've had plaintiff lawyers come in and ask for, uh, astronomical numbers, and then, you know, the judge has to come in and say, no, I'm giving you, you know, 20% of that or 30% or whatever the number is. And so I think there's certainly motivations at times to drive the, you know, claim value of these settlements up because a lot of the plaintiff's lawyers will come in and say that, you know, the value of the settlement is, you know, 5x and their fee is based upon getting 5x. And there's always, there can be a fight over um, what the real value of the settlement is and what the real value that was provided to the class, and that's hard to do sometimes in a security breach type case because, frankly, there's no, at 
most of these cases will settle for some type of credit monitoring, uh, which a smaller percentage of people take, and therefore you, you really can't say these are you know, huge settlements in context necessarily. And so I think a mediator can help try to bridge the gap on some of those issues and point out you know, the value that's being given in a way that doesn't drive the numbers up to a, a level that's really unsupportable uh, based upon the, the lack of damages in these cases. Right, and, and that's actually helpful for the plaintiff's attorneys because they would rather have something than nothing. <laughs> right, right, exactly. So. <laughs> I mean, it's better than getting beat on summary judgment, so that's right. the challenge, and uh, right. that's right. And so you'd raised confidentiality earlier. I mean, how, how do you see that playing out in mediation uh, in, in cases generally? Oh, yeah, that is the real beauty, I think, for every every kind of a case, whether it's you know, two businesses as that we talked about before, or whether I had a case where I mediated where it was a very large financial company that um, one of their own employees had stolen the identity. Uh, he was a, a financial planner, and he had stolen the identity of a, several of the um, the actual clients of this financial company. And so it wasn't a class action. It was just a few people. And that settled quietly so that never no one ever knew that this big company had been through this so it was quiet um of course the people who had been through this who had been through a lot of challenges with you know almost losing their home because of all this they they were able to get a loan and they were able to get their lives going and it ended rather quickly um quite quite comfortably for everybody the plaintiff's attorney was happy the defense attorney was happy everybody was happy because it was totally confidential no one knows the name of the company and that's something again that once you are bringing all this out in litigation and you're doing depositions and you're doing discovery and everything you're doing all this uh, to to gather as much information as possible, and then of course you're you're making accusations. That's the way the name of the game. But if you get in early, for example, you can really keep a lot of this confidential. And it's it's kind of hard to do that in when you're doing that. You know, you can't seal cases very easily in California, Orange County. I don't know of any judges that will seal cases. I really don't, unless there's a child involved. So. You know, how do you do this? How do you keep it confidential? You must, we've had cases come down that really honor the confidentiality that's in our evidence code that says anything that you say in mediation can never be used against you in a court of law. So once you sign an agreement and say it's enforceable in a court of law, of course you can enforce it. But until that time, you've got all this great confidentiality. So, you know, you don't have that in litigation, right? No, quite the opposite. I mean, I think, uh, and my experience uh, in the courts, particularly Orange County, has been the same, which is they're very unlikely to seal um, seal cases. Uh, so that's exactly right. Okay, so tell us, um, what challenges are there really with security beach breaches when there's a duty to disclose publicly? That kind of takes away from any kind of privacy or confidentiality. It does. I mean, it, it certainly does um, at some level, at least for the company. And obviously, the people involved still have some level, uh, you know, the, either the plaintiff or the uh, potential class members have some level of, of privacy still left. But it, it, does, um, it does create issues. And obviously, the, you know, there's competing interest because at some level, giving notice is, is obviously a good thing. 
but uh, as we all know from uh, whichever breach you choose to, to focus on, there's a lot of phishing and, and other types of uh, you know attacks that happen following those breaches. And therefore, at some level, it's not that I'm saying don't give notice, but notice can lead to further privacy problems because you have bad actors trying to pile on and say, you know, give us your social security number or credit card so we can help protect your identity from the, you know, X company breach. And it turns out that's, you know, some form of phishing expedition and, and you have more identity theft that follows. And so I think that's one of the challenges is once you have to disclose, you not only have issues vis-a-vis uh, third parties, you have issues with people knowing their information's out there, and it's just very difficult issues. And so I think obviously all things equal, if uh, you know, a company's going to have to give notice, it wants to also manage its brand and make sure that the notice is given appropriately, but in, in the best way for everybody. And I think that's one of the real hard challenges. And obviously it, it lessens the value of uh, you know, confidentiality in some way, because obviously once the company's brand is associated with a breach, it, it obviously matters at least probably less for the company whether there's confidentiality around it. And frankly, the individual people probably wouldn't have their information in play publicly uh, anyway. But it does create a lot of problems, and, and I think there has to be really a balanced approach taken with these security breaches to not kind of reflexively shoot notice out if it's really not appropriate, because it does have, I think, the potential at least to lead at times to follow-on identity theft, because people will be tricked into giving their personal information out to a third party. And, you know, it, it's very embarrassing for a company. Like you said, it really hurts their brand and it costs them a lot of money to do all this. So the one good thing that has come out of all this security breach legislation that I think you and I talked about last year is the fact that it has really caused companies to 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 wake up and to encrypt because if they, at least in the state of California, that's, you know, you've, you've got the stick, you have to uh, disclose, but the carrot is if you encrypt the data and make it unreadable and and there is a security breach which many companies will be the subject of a security breach if they do that they're going to avoid having to disclose right well i mean i think there's a variety of different ways i mean i think the you know the key for the companies is obviously making sure you have reason a couple pieces reasonable data security in place you're you're really collecting the minimum amount of data you actually need to do something and minimizing the use of social security numbers, whether it's legally required or not, really is an important factor because uh, the reality is for the vast majority of the states, um, it isn't just an encryption issue. It's, you know, do you have those certain elements of personal identifiable information that trigger the statutes? And so part, an easier way to avoid a lot of problems is really keep your data footprint small and don't use socials or other types of PII that trigger those laws if you can possibly avoid it. Then I think if you're going to, obviously having you know, good data security, um, encryption is, is good where appropriate. The other thing is the log files. I think one of the real challenges companies have is, frankly, acquisition um, is kind of the key to all of this. And so merely even having people perhaps look at the data without acquisition, uh, meaning access, access alone usually doesn't trigger most of these laws, at least, unless there's um, harm under HIPAA or some other ones. So I think part of the other fact is companies need to really do a good job of keeping log files to show who had access to what and whether data was actually taken off a server, because in many cases, if it's not actually physically, you know, Acquired. anything yeah. physically in the electronic world, but physically taken, if you will, um, 
most of the breach laws aren't triggered. And I think the you know encryption is critical. I think uh, you know in, in many cases, but I also think, frankly, having yeah. some kind of logging that really shows what happened with these sensitive forms of data is also important. Well, would you believe we are out of time? We're going to have so much fun at that program, just kind of bouncing off each other. And we just think you are terrific. We can't wait to have you back again. I know you did a recent white paper that we're going to have you and your your co-author on again. You're just wonderful, Andy. We think you are just terrific. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. All right. We'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9. FM Minervine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning right here on at 8 a.m. right on KUCI. And visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy where you can see our upcoming guests. You can download podcasts and you can write us emails about what, what you're concerned about or what you're worried about with privacy in the information age. So thank you again and toss, hope you'll be with us next week. Bye. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.